If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. Primatologists would tell us stories about the behaviors that we've inherited from our primate ancestors. But I, I like thinking with viruses because they're constantly infecting us, changing our nature. Some, some of them, like retroviruses, are even changing our genome. So we're really constantly in relation with the worlds around us, e- even though we can barely perceive and understand all of this complexity. In this episode, we're speaking with Eben Kirksey, an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Oxford, where he teaches medical anthropology and human ecology. He earned his PhD at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and helped found one of the world's first environmental humanities programs at UNSW Sydney in Australia. Eben has an insatiable curiosity about nature and culture, investigating some of the most important stories of our time related to biotechnology, the environment, and social justice, led him to Asia, the Pacific, and the Americas. His books include Freedom in Entangled Worlds and Emergent Ecologies, plus The Multispecies Salon and The Mutant Project, a book that follows some of the world's first genetically modified people. Like many of the people who are probably listening right now, I experienced profound disruption in, in my own life and in my own dreams during the pandemic. You know, everyday reality was difficult to navigate and it was hard to know what was coming next. And during the pandemic, I, I decided that rather than doing a lot of writing, I saw a lot of people putting out hasty hot takes about the pandemic. I decided to do a lot of reading 
So I, I started a reading group and we met every Monday in, in Zoom. And initially we were just focused on reading the primary literature about coronaviruses, SARS-CoV-2. But then we started going sideways a little bit and really opened up into this broad universe of viruses that don't make us sick. And and I should say that, you know, that, that event was a collective trauma. It's, it's a trauma that we're still individually processing, collectively processing. A lot of us lost loved ones. I, I lost a student of mine, a, a PhD student, an indigenous woman named Yosina Mospakrik in West mm-hmm. Papua. She didn't have access to oxygen or any of the vaccines or fancy treatments that were later rolled out in the States. But even amidst that mass death, I I started to reflect on really this vast unknown universe of of the virus here and these new technologies that have just come online in the last couple of decades that let us look at the DNA sequences in, in, in our body. I mean, we've got narratives and ways of understanding bacteria, and there's been a lot of conversation about the microbiome and probiotics. But we're really just starting to reckon with all of the viruses that that are constantly um, swarming within our bodies. So just to give you one example, if you look at parts of your body that were previously thought to be completely sterile, so I'm talking about your brain, your cerebral spinal fluid, your blood, these are actually teeming with a kind of virus called phage. And phage is... um, the kind of virus that infects bacteria. And one expert explained it to me much like a shadow immune system. So there's there's actually more phage virus in our bodies than white blood cells. And, mm-hmm. and they're not just showing up by accident. The phage that are in our bodies, many of them are actively transported from our gut. So in our gut, we have a lot of bacteria, a lot of other components of our microbiome, but the cells of our gut epithelium are latching on to these phage viruses and transporting them into our blood. So so our our body's able to selectively incorporate these these infectious strangers into our bodies. And it's also interesting for me to think about you know, a quote that that Anna Singh and Donna Haraway have played with, you know, for, for many decades, primatologists would tell us stories about the behaviors that we've inherited from our primate ancestors. But I, I like thinking with viruses because they're constantly infecting us, changing our nature. Some Some of them, like retroviruses, are even changing our genome. So we're really constantly in relation with the worlds around us, even though we can barely perceive and understand all of this complexity. So yeah, even as I was isolating with everyone else, even as I was trying to access the latest information about SARS-CoV-2 and the ecological conditions that produced this pandemic, I became very curious about the parts of the virus sphere that aren't necessarily making us sick, but that are really a core part of life on Earth. And you know, if, if you look at biodiversity on a planetary scale and you count the viral particles, there's there's no million. I, I learned a new number in, in doing this research. My, my seven-year-old loves to tell you that there's 30 zeros and no million. So this is a mind-boggling number of, of entities. And the story of genetic diversity on Earth is also a story of of viral diversity. And we really don't understand it that well. Mm. 
Really fascinating and so much we've still yet to learn. On the show, we've explored the limitations of categorizing and naming in general, given a vastly complex and ever-changing world that refuses to sit still and be fixed or framed. And recently in my conversation with Danny Salemeyer, we also touched on the troubles with the whole idea of species altogether, given that it relies on reductionism, it recognizes the already limited unit of a species as individual, and that it stems from particular knowledge systems and worldviews. And your work reminded me of this when you share viral ontologies put the limited amphibiousness of the human to shame. Viruses refuse to sit still as stable individuals, variants, strains, or species. They proliferate in mutant swarms, clouds of particles with a fluid genetic makeup, end quote. I wonder if part of the reason for our relatively limited understanding and ability to understand the virosphere comes in part from the particular dominant lenses of our life sciences of defining and categorizing and reducing. So how might thinking with viruses humble our human egos and invite us to better understand ourselves too as complex holobionts constantly interacting with other holobionts and the multi-species world? If it feels relevant for you to bring in that word holobiont in particular, I would appreciate if you could also introduce what that refers to for people hearing it for the first time. Yeah, I, I really love that question. And I think I'm going to respond with a story. So so one of the people I uh, grew close to during the pandemic is named Sasha Gorbalenya. You know, at, at a time when everybody was out in front of the media describing themselves as a, a coronavirus expert, Sa- Sasha was actually relatively quiet, but he was a real expert. He described the first coronavirus genome about 30 years ago and pioneered some math, some computing techniques to really get inside of of the genetic sequences and figure out what all these different proteins do. So in in these conversations with Sasha, first of all, I I learned that our image of the virus as a particle is is really just all wrong, focusing on the wrong thing. So, So he said, you wouldn't understand a tree by just carefully studying a seed. So in in conversations with with Sasha, I I learned about how viruses come alive inside of cells, inside of their environments, and Mm. and they become sort of multiple. They they aren't just one thing. They become all these different molecules that interface with different parts of our cells. So one part goes goes to... um, the nucleus and, and, you know, might grab some DNA base pairs or RNA and make more of itself. Uh, others, other components of the virus are, you know, going to the Golgi apparatus and, and going to um, sites of protein synthesis and, and interacting with and disrupting the cell that it finds itself within. Sasha is also the one who named, uh, gave the official name to SARS-CoV-2. So if you do a COVID test, you'll see that it, it it's not testing for COVID-19, which is a disease that makes you seriously sick and you could die from that. But most people get infected with the virus, SARS-CoV-2, and don't get seriously sick and, and don't die. So for starters, Sasha wants to d- differentiate. It's just like HIV and AIDS. There's there's a difference between the infectious agent and, and the experience of, of pathology. I think it's really important to think about how 
histories of racism and colonialism make certain kinds of people vulnerable, whether it's through the kinds of molecular wounds that our cells accumulate over a lifetime with metabolic diseases like diabetes. So it turns out that diabetes makes us express more ACE2 receptors on ourselves. So your body has an adaptive response to one, one disease, you know, eating a lot of sugar, and that makes you vulnerable to this virus, SARS-CoV-2, and you're going to get COVID-19. But back, back to your question about species, the paper that Sasha described SARS-CoV-2 with, the paper that gave this pandemic virus its official name, placed it within a, a known species that Sasha had described before. So SARS-CoV-2 is the same species as the original SARS. And he, he's basically told me the story about how it's been circulating amongst animals and people for, for decades, if, if not millennium. In, in naming this entity, SARS-CoV-2, he compared it to a person. So the, the scientific paper compares SARS-CoV-2 to a person like Albert Einstein. Maybe the original SARS is, is Marie Curie, RATG-13, the, the one that was found in bats in southern China, you know, m- might be Rosalind Franklin, another scientist. But what's interesting, if you think about these viral persons, is that they really don't sit still. They don't have fixed boundaries. So, you know, he's not reducing that viral person to a single viral particle, but again, trying to get us to think about clouds and swarms that might be in multiple bodies, a multitude of bodies all at once. So so imagine a, a cloud or a swarm encircling the whole planet in and out of thousands, if not millions of bodies all, all at once. So, so this is what a viral cloud is. It's, it's not something that sits still. It's not something that has fixed boundaries. And, you know, these, these viruses, when they find themselves inside of the same cell, sometimes they're hybridizing. Sometimes they're recombining with different strains. Sometimes, you know, they're, they're not having sex when they reproduce like we do. Uh, a viral species looks very different from what a human species uh, looks like. But, you know, they can pick up snippets of DNA either from kissing cousins, you know, members of the same broad group of organisms, or, or sometimes they might pick up a, a bit of genetic material from a, a completely different virus, or even a plant or an animal or a fungi. So viruses are really interesting for this ongoing traffic of information, what Karen Barad would call these material semiotic elements, things that are are both three-dimensional in space. They have materiality, but they also have meaning. They have information, semiotics. So, you know, you could also think about viruses as, as holobionts. You can think of the human as a holobiont, um, and we're holobionts that interact with each other. If you go back to the root of, of that word, holobiont, it means entire organism. And this is, this is a, a word that Lynn Margulis popularized with her theory of symbiogenesis. So symbiogenesis is a, a way of thinking about the transformative encounters that might really change all the parties involved in, in such an encounter. So I, I really think that the, the basic foundations of evolutionary theory, and but also theories of, of change, corporeal change, change, ecological change in real time could be radically rethought with this new wave of viral theory that's that's paying attention to this constant traffic of infectious agents amongst bodies of different species and of different kinds. So, So in thinking about 
the assemblages of, of organisms and ecological communities that make us who we are, I think it's not only important to think about the kinds of interactions that you can have at the level that you can sense and perceive and understand with, you know, your, your eyes and your, your ears and, and your waking senses, but entering the speculative territory to think about these barely perceptible invisible agents that are, are constantly changing the trajectories of, of our, our cells, our tissues, and possibly even in our systems of, of thinking. So one of the phage virologists who's described this uh, very crazy diversity of viruses in the brain you know, speculates and, and it might be idle speculation, you know, but, but he's got a, a key section of the scientific review paper that speculates about phage mind control. There's, there's been a lot written on the uh, gut brain axis in terms of the uh, neurotransmitters that bacteria produce in our gut that might change our, our moods or our appetites or our feelings. I think it's important not to be too deterministic as, as we think in molecular terms. But, but I really like to think about ways we might decenter the human. And I think Lacan had a great way of, of thinking about decentering the human in, in terms of psychology. And it's important to, you know, both recognize that as conscious subjects, we might not be fully present to ourselves, but we become who we are in, in relation to others. But I think decentering the human subject in, in the terms of virology, in the terms of ecology, in the terms of what I call multi-species ethnography, might really help us get past some of the foundational hubris that's, that's driving the modern project forward and really force us to reflect on how our contemporary lives are entangled with these industrial systems that are inducing all kinds of harm on livestock. You know, we might think that we're separated from the meat factories that produce chicken and beef and all these things that we eat. But we're, we're also entangled with, with these systems, not just by putting food in our mouth, but by living in a shared world where there's ongoing traffic of, of viruses, either, either benign, symbiotic, or potentially pathogenic. Mm. I mean, just learning about the virosphere makes me question a lot of things. And for starters, I think it really invites me to see the world through a lens of movement and context and kind of undefining things. And of course, the synergies born out of different interactions and more. And I know that some people take issue with the label of the human world versus the more than human world and how it again suggests the dualism and separation. But I guess I would be curious to think about how understanding our paraselves and what that means through the lens of our virome might literally situate us as being more than human, which would completely dismantle the binaries of us versus our environment or the internal and the external or the human versus the more than human. So what would you add to this and how could this perspective shift influence how we go about defining what it means to be well? So the philosopher William James talked about the self as the sum total of beings and things for whom one cares for. So back in his day, it, it might have included your home or your 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 books or your kitchen. You know, now we have all kinds of things that make us who we are, from the mobile phones that we carry around in our pocket that enable us to embed ourselves within these vast informatics networks and clouds of information, um, but also 
in, in these commodity chains that produce the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear. So, so I think with these ongoing intra-actions, and this is again a, a term from Karen Barad to refer to the ways that transformative encounters engender modes of being. You can, you can never have entities in isolation, but they're always in becoming. They're always in these, these flows of matter and exchange. And it's only agency only emerges in those encounters, not, not in isolation. So yeah, th- thinking about these viral flows and the root word of virus means slimy liquid. It, it came about when they really couldn't figure out what was making these strange patterns on a tobacco plant. This was this was before electron microscopes and, and other um, technologies of perception enabled people to visualize the virus. But you could see impacts of, of this, this slimy liquid that they thought was um, making patterns appear on, on um, tobacco plants. The tobacco, what later became called the tobacco mosaic virus. So they knew that there was some kind of infectious agent or transformative agent that was small enough to pass through a filter that would normally entrap bacteria, but it, it, it wasn't chemical. They couldn't quite figure out what it was. I, I think playing with that figure of, of liquid is, is important today, you know viruses, you know, inhabit things like spit and are animating um, these these clouds of particles that are all around us. But yeah, if, if we can also conceptualize these fluid ontologies that, that our bodies are entangled with, where, you know, bodies might seem stable in, in the particular time space that's easy for us to apprehend, but within these greater flows of, of, of particles and genetic information, what appears to be stable in the now is, is just an ephemeral form that, that is destined to, to future change. What got me especially excited reading about the virus fear through your writing is, of course, when you connected it to our broader issues. As you share, symbiotic relationships are often unwanted or unescapable. On the scale of communities, populations, and nations, new symbiotic arrangements can reinforce injustice, end quote. And then skipping forward a few lines, you conclude, when many institutions and politicians operate like virulent parasites with the single-minded pursuit of maximum short-term gain, to repurpose a quote from Mary Yole, learning how to think like these symbiotic viruses might offer ways out of contemporary planetary predicaments. It is possible to infect and disrupt dominant systems and open up new generative fields of possibility, end quote. I think people tend to see symbiosis as a positive because maybe it embodies that reciprocity that a lot a lot of us strive to practice and learn from. So I would love it if you could first elaborate on what you mean by symbiotic arrangements, reinforcing injustice, and then ultimately what can we learn from the interactions in the virosphere to really think through how we can infect and disrupt the exploitative and destructive systems our bodies have become a part of, but maybe yearn to help compost and shapeshift. So I think I'll get into symbiosis with help from Robin Wall Kimmerer. I'm, I'm listening to her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, right now. And um, she really unraveled one, one of my favorite unusual rock-inhabiting organisms, a, a lichen. It's called rock tripe um, that, that I've, I've tried to eat on a couple of occasions, although she's got a much better recipe in braiding sweetgrass than, than I was ever able to cook up myself. So in, in braiding sweetgrass, Kimmerer describes how in isolation, 
isolation, the two partners to this symbiotic arrangement, they don't generally want to hook up if you are giving them, you know, the ideal conditions of life. They're, they're going to avoid each other. You know, they're, they're going to flourish independently if, if they find themselves in an environment that is, is enabling that flourishing. But if, if you starve the fungus, if you starve the algae, so, you know, the, the basics of lichen symbiosis is that you have a fungus and then you have an algae. The algae does photosynthesis. The fungus kind of scours um, rocks and other, other things for all kinds of minerals and nutrients. And if you starve them of some of the key things they need, then they find each other and kind of become unlocked in this entangled embrace. And you could um, study the exchanges and conclude that the, the fungus is really being exploitative in, in this situation. You know, the, all the photosynthesis is, is done by the algal partner and um, the fungus is taking the lion's share of the sugar. You, you could sort of compare it to a, a bad marriage, as, as Kimmerer does. And, and we know of many relations uh, in our social worlds where one partner seems to be taking more than the fair share of resources. So I, I also like to think of symbiosis in the more abstract terms of the Belgian philosopher Isabel Stingers. She, she talks about modes of reciprocal capture. And, and she doesn't really differentiate with that idea between the bird and the butterfly, the the prey and, and, and the predator that are kind of entangled. And the butterfly really doesn't want to be in any relation to the bird, but the bird has figured out what the butterfly looks like and it has developed an uh, ever more sophisticated brain and, and perceptive system to detect the prey against the backdrop of the landscape. Or, or you could think about you know, one of the foundational examples that Lynn Margulis uses, the organelles, the mitochondria in our cells or the chloroplasts and plant cells. Um, you know, she talks about symbiogenesis as a, a process of becoming together where there was probably an event back in the day where one microbe ate another and you had these new kinds of cells emerge with, with new interesting abilities. So these relations are often awkward. They're often unwanted. They're often stifling to kind of anthropomorphize a little bit when we're talking about cellular dynamics. And we could think about um, viruses in the same light. I was recently talking with an expert on Peggy virus. Um, Peggy virus is um, getting around right now in, in the blood supply. It sounds like around 30% of, of the blood that people are picking up in, in hospitals um, have Peggy virus, but it actually seems to have some benefits to uh, human hosts. If you're infected with Peggy virus and HIV and you don't have access to uh, standard drugs, the Peggy virus is, is going to actually prevent you from dying. It sounds like you know you, you have a three times greater likelihood of dying from HIV if you don't have a, a Peggy virus infection. And, and they're still trying to understand like the mechanisms behind this, but it, it might have something to do with inflammatory responses. But you know, just because a virus is good in one context doesn't mean it's going to give you broad health benefits. I also really like Heather Paxson's work, who studied this in the context of bacteria. And she insists that you can't really tell a good bacteria from a bad bacteria in any kind of like categorical way. Like you can't identify the species and be like, oh, that's the bad guy. That's the good guy. It really depends on the situation. It depends on what other microbes are in the mix. It depends on your own state of health. So a raw milk cheese that might be very tasty and even, um, you know, some enthusiasts 
talk about it giving health benefits to people who eat it by, you know, enhancing the liveliness of your microbiome. If you happen to be pregnant or if you happen to have a compromised immune system, that same cheese could make you really sick. So I, I think as, as much as um, some people like to celebrate this idea of symbiosis, which literally means living together, which doesn't necessarily, you know, it often gets conflated with like mutualism or, you know, the, this idea that, you know, two forms of life are actively getting along. We've got to think about exploitation and, and we've got to think about kind of the, the ways that industrial systems, societal systems, intergenerational processes like colonialism and racism are also impacting vulnerabilities, you know, so some people might be thriving with exposures to all kinds of viruses that might be making others sick. So we have to think about chemical exposures, um, industrial chemicals that might be compromising bodies that might be wounding them alongside viral exposures. So I, I very much don't want to just uncritically celebrate the traffic of viruses in and out of our bodies, but to think about who has access to good health care, who, who might be in a position to benefit from some cutting edge gene therapy therapy delivered from a virus, but who might be really at risk from, from those kinds of experiments that, that have a chance of, of going off the rails and, and running, running amok. I appreciate you pointing out how symbiosis, which purely means to live together, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to be an extractive dynamic and dependence, because as we know, many people today have become dependent on partaking in or even reinforcing the extractive systems that we live with in order to just survive. So I appreciate that very much. Earlier, we touched on the word paraselves, which you say are like the figural parasites described by Michel Serres. They are jokers, wild cards, taking on different values depending on their positions, end quote. In a portion of Emergent Ecologies, you talk about chytrids, which are defined as any simple algae-like fungi that does not typically form mycelium. And you name how while our bubbles of comforts and happiness are dependent on these chytrid paracelves, no theory of work has ever really taken notice of chytrid labor. I would love this opportunity to bring to the forefront this invisibilized and less charismatic part of the daily functioning of our world and ask you about the role of chytrids as jokers and paraselves, as well as how our lives depend on chytrids for constant renewal. So I really love your question about chytrids, and um, these organisms are all around us, as as a multitude of other unloved entities and beings are are in our worlds and sustaining our lives that really go unnoticed unless something goes wrong. So so I got to know chytrids because I was studying this wave of mass extinction that was sweeping through the worlds of amphibians. Um, basically, the conventional conservation strategies weren't working, and in, in the highlands of Costa Rica, there had been this sustained campaign to save the rainforest and buy up land. But in the 1980s, when the ecotourists showed up, it seems like one of them brought a chytrid spore on their foot. Chytrids are really cute when you look at them under the microscope. I'm, I'm <laughs> describing one kind of chytrid called Bacococytrium dendrobatidis, which is basically the kind of chytrid that gets inside of the skin of frogs and, and eats it while they're alive. Frogs depend on, on their skin for breathing. And this disease went global 
global. And it went global not only because of our mundane practices of, of global travel, you know, things like tourism, business travel, exchange students, really the same kind of travel that was responsible for the coronavirus pandemic. But, but in the case of this Kitrid, it seems like the, the biotech industry might have some responsibility for this mass pandemic. So you see um, the international traffic of, of amphibians, either as laboratory animals or in the pet trade or also in the food industry as, as the probable source for this, this new kind of chytrid that, that started to become pathogenic and, and led to this mass extinction event. So even as we're accounting for mass extinction and this time that many call the Anthropocene, in many ways, the stories are often too anthropocentric, focusing on human agency, human action. But this is an eruption of, of an unseen, an unloved, an unnoticed force in our world. So panning out, your broader question was about the unseen work that these chytrids are doing, that they're, they're jokers, that they're part of ourselves, that are beside ourselves, they're becoming with dissolution and glee. You know, so chytrids like to eat things that other things can't eat. So one example is keratin from your fingernails or also present in your hair. And, you know, chytrids will get in there. They live in, in watery environments. They look like little sperm when they're babies. They swim around and then they insist on, on the, the, the tasty thing like a fingernail and, and they're, they're doing the molecular work to open up that detritus and, and make it available to other things, other kinds of fungi, bacteria, actinomyocetes. With, without these, these, these chytrids in the world, we, we would have, have an accumulation of all kinds of undigestible shit. <laughs> and I'm using that word literally. Um, there's one kind of chytrid called... Uh, Oh, if, if I can get this name right, uh, forgive me if I pronounce it wrong, but I believe it's Fomicococytrium jonesii, which I'm told in Latin means Dr. Jones's horse shit chytrid. So it's only found in, in horse poop. And it's, it's part of kind of that first wave of um, ecological succession that opens up this waste to be bioavailable bio to other forms of life. In thinking about these worlds, I often think with Deborah Bird Rose, who, who thinks about death and waste as, as this kind of intergenerational gift. And, and I think industrial ecologies right now are producing what Deborah Bird Rose calls double death on a planetary scale, the forms of death that don't get channeled back into life, that, that are sort of a greedy death, a, a death that, that doesn't get turned into food for others. Like, you know, we embalm ourselves, we try to put our, ourselves in these casket and and coffins and concrete to pr protect ourselves from the liveliness of the afterlife. And, and chytrids illustrate how lively the afterlife might be. If you look at them under a microscope, you see all these bubbles nested within other bubbles. So, so basically, the baby chytrid swims to the, to the substrate. It, it insists. It grows bigger. It puts out these little root-like structures called rhizoids. And then you can see all these little balls wiggling inside of the chytrid as it grows. And if you happen to catch one under a microscope, you'll see this little hole open up in the side of it. And all of a sudden, a bunch of little babies come whizzing out. They're called zoospores. And, and you might get a hundred bursting out in, in a single moment. You, you can see matter becoming lively. So, you know, for me, um, giving a presence to these, these beings that make our life possible, make our life possible, not in any kind of direct, you know, 
giving us sugar from photosynthesis kind of symbiotic way, but a, a mode of living with that's more about distributed assemblages and, and taking the things that fall off our bodies that we don't even think about very much. You know, we clip our fingernails and might flush it down the toilet or, you know, discard it in, in you know, the trash, or maybe it ends up in the dirt. But, you know, if, if our, our detritus finds its way into these aqueous wet landscapes, it's, it's going to be the chytrids that are giving these parts of our bodies an afterlife. Hmm. I think what this gets me to think about is how our use and perception of the word renewal is typically and probably totally situated from our lens specifically, because we might see the agents of composting our waste as agents of renewal because they're turning beings and things that we might not otherwise be able to use or consume into other things that we might, or at least just to cycle it back into the web of life. But actually, the beings like the chytrids, who are dependent on our waste and the waste of other beings as food, would see us as their agents of renewal. So yeah, it's just interesting to think about how this label of renewal changes depending on what perspectives they are coming from. But anyway, we've been largely exploring how the virusphere and the microscopic world ought to really humble our human egos and senses of mastery of knowledge about the world. And I'm curious to also explore some ant ecology with you. Specifically in emergent ecologies, you name these ectotoma ants as being ontological amphibians. What does that mean to you and what can we learn from it? And also, if it feels relevant, why do you suggest a departure from looking at ant ecologies or ecosystems as superorganisms and instead calling for us to view them as ensembles of individuals? Yeah, I, I really like this question. And for, for starters, grappling with this notion of the ontological amphibian is, is really playing with a phrase from Peter Sloterdijk. So Sloterdijk is this German philosopher. He's alive today. And he imagines himself as the second coming of Martin Heidegger. And Heidegger is the 20th century philosopher who's most famous or infamous for really relentlessly insisting that the human is special. Um, Heidegger said, the stone is worldless, the animal is poor in world, and the human is world forming. So, so Sloterdijk modified that to um, suggest that humans are the only animals able to move amongst ontologies and move amongst worlds and create and form new worlds. And in, in some ways, I've been trolling uh, Sloterdijk with my work on chytrids and ants, you know, and I, I try to explain how chytrids are very amphibious and, and often inhabiting these multiple worlds, multiple ontologies, becoming otherwise depending on who or what is in the world with them. So if you take a chytrid in, in isolation, it's going to look like one thing. But if it's surrounded by um, all kinds of other beings, it, its structure and formation and mode of life looks and, and appears and acts totally differently. So in many ways, these these chytrids are are world forming and becoming with others, but they're also world destroying, right? So I, I described how chytrids created this global pandemic, this mass extinction event for amphibians, a humble virus, a, a virus that hadn't been well characterized before. SARS-CoV-2 suddenly disrupted the modern world system. It, it brought capitalism to a halt. It globally reduced carbon emissions, something that we couldn't accomplish politically, but this, this the force of this viral agency 
accomplish something that, that humans couldn't bring it to, to themselves to do. So ants, I also describe in particular Ectotoma ruidum as these ontological amphibians that are able to get inside of the worlds of others and create worlds. And some of the worlds involve caterpillars that they actually can, can sing to. There's, there's kind of a, a call and response sometimes between these ants and caterpillars. I also tell stories of plants that try to enfold ectotoma into their worlds by bribing them with, with sugary treats. But really, you know, your core question is getting at this, this metaphor, the, the superorganism that's both applied to ant colonies and to ecosystems. And I think the history of, of ant research has in many ways focused on the wrong thing, at least for, say, like 20, 30 years, where a lot of emphasis has been focused on um, the um, workers that are out for foraging and the, the ways that they all kind of cohere into some kind of cooperative unit. But if you look at the babies, if you look at the ant larvae, there are these little white grubs, and they're not very uh, cute from an anthropomorphic mm -hmm. viewpoint, but they're kind of the key entities that hold a group of ants together. I've, I've got one student who just finished a, a PhD on Eseton bruselli, another ant. Um, conventionally, they're called army ants, but Kwai has, has done some really great work to decolonize the ant metaphors and push back against these conventions of naming. So, so I'm thinking about a nest of ants that hangs together. I think about the babies as doing the key work of what actor network theorists call interessement. They're, they're basically what holds these groups together. So if you see an ant carrying solid food around, it doesn't really have the mouth parts or the ability to eat that food. They're bringing that food back to the babies that, will, that do have the mouth parts that eat it. And then they basically uh, secrete these nutritious liquids and proteins that the adults will lick off of them. So, so adult ants generally can only eat liquid food. So in kind of following these individuals and thinking about how they hang together as an assemblage or an ensemble, it's um, really looking at the larvae and how they kind of choreograph these these dances of adults in, in space and time. I, I think that's what makes these these entities hang together. Wow, super interesting. From my read of your work, and not just this portion, but everything altogether, I get the sense, and correct me if I'm mistaken, that you're critical about the, quote, ready-made script of invasives as the naturalization of xenophobia. You talk about how the reductive environmentalist messages to kill the aliens and save the native species takes on this purist and reductive approach, akin to the agrochemical industries trying to kill the pests and fertilize and enrich the crops. Perhaps just repeating the same problematic dynamics and patterns, but in different forms. I've been really challenged to think through the whole idea of invasive species, and I'm not quite sure where I land just yet, but I know I really resonate with what you share when you talk about and these are, in my paraphrasing words, the ever-changing and ever-emergent ecosystems everywhere that do not sit still and are constantly being co-produced by every being in the community, from the micro to the macro to, of course, the synergies that they create by coming together. Because reckoning with these changing bodies of ecosystems also really pushes us to question the idea of conservation or 
saving near extinct forms of species or engaging in something like captive breeding as a way to quote unquote save the planet, given that the transformed conditions and extended realities that led to their decline and endangerment in the first place are likely still present or maybe have yet just transformed even further away from what those species had evolved and grown most adapted to. So I guess my question, without necessarily any right answers, is do we embrace the unpredictable and ever-changing new orders that the entangled webs of life everywhere are constantly co-producing? And otherwise, if we understand anthropogenic change as an inevitable, just given our own entanglement with all of life, how do we determine what constitutes as the healthiest balance of acting as keystone species to manage and sometimes manipulate for our greater well-being versus maintaining a humility to let go and let ourselves be caught up in the webs of changes that are stringing us along. So for starters, I, I think it's important to question the value system of consumer capitalism that teaches us from a very young age to value everything new everything novel. So, you know, it's the latest movie or the latest song, the new hit single. This is what we're trained from a very early age to, to desire. And there's, there's a whole movement in ecology that's interested in novel ecosystems and to think about the kinds of ecological assemblages that have emerged in degraded and blasted landscapes, places like former bombing ranges. I think at the same time, it's important to appreciate these emergent dynamics. It's important to also appreciate, you know, emergent diseases like the chytrid fungus or like the pathogenic coronavirus that just disrupted the modern world system alongside other kinds of, of more hopeful emergences. So the first plant to sprout after a volcanic eruption is, you know, this is an emergence of, of, of sorts. So the question becomes, who does one love in, in an era of extinction, in an era of dynamism and ecological change? And, and I think it's, it's often the charismatic animals, the colorful ones, the ones that are most like us. It's less easy to even notice, much less love insects or, or microbes, chytrids, ants. So in part, my work has, has been aesthetic, just, you know, sort of disrupting dominant perceptions of beauty and, and care and valuation to think about the kinds of species that, that might be cared for even amidst these, these big destructive forces that are, we're, we're all entangled in, right? You know, I'm, I'm talking to you today mediated by technology that was created in factories likely in Shenzhen, China, you know, conditions of, of work that are not good. The electricity that's sustaining this conversation undoubtedly has some coal in there. You know, we're, we're entangled in, in these, these systems systems that, that we hate, but nonetheless, they sustain our contemporary forms of life. And in our contemporary forms of life are having ramifying effects on, on, on these worlds around us. So I think it's important to, you know, think past these, these metaphors of holism. So the superorganism metaphor is, is one that emerged out of uh, early 20th century ecology. There, there was a famous debate between Clements and Gleason that went on for years. And, and one of them was insisting ecosystems are superorganisms. They have functional parts. This is what stays stable over time. 
And, and the other was insisting, you know, if you look at long periods of the geological record, you see groups of animals and plants come and go in time and space. They're, they're not always the same sort of meta system. It's, it's, it's a contingent assemblage um, that comes and goes. And, and, and even Tansley, the guy who coined the term ecosystem, was, was really um, puzzled by where to draw boundaries and tended to side more on the, the part of the debate that was about these um, very fluid boundaries and coming and going of, of non-essential parts. So human affection and, and care is important to reckon with, and it's, it's important to you know, grapple with the kinds of life that animates people to save the rainforest, for example, or intervene in a particular situation and um, protect trees or, or rivers or, or these, these kind of spaces. But I think all of these conservation politics need to be viewed again against this backdrop of histories of settler colonialism, of racism. I was studying some monkeys that were out of place in Florida at the same time as a white vigilante shot dead a young black black boy named Trayvon Martin. And the parallels in discourse were, were so apparent. Um, this, this was on the Silver River in Florida, the place where the original Tarzan movies were, were filmed. And, and those movies were, were filmed on a section of the river that was historically the colored part of the river, a legacy of segregation, a, a legacy of intense racism and discrimination. So I, I, I dwelled with um, African-American communities that have been excluded from these spaces at the same time that I tried to understand the emergent ecological dynamics with, with these, these monkeys that many people deemed as, as being out of place. So, so kind of who belongs in a society, who belongs in an ecological world is, is always a political question. You know, it's, it's a question of, of identity. It's a, a question of inclusivity and, and ultimately of, of care. But, you know, some, sometimes that care can look like violence. And often in situations of, of conservation, people are often losing sight of, of who or what is being cared for. So often violence is enacted on particular kinds of plants or animals. Sometimes poison is brought into the picture with chemicals like glyphosate that are um, killing whole communities and, and ecological processes. So, so I think learning how to do that work of promoting flourishing in a changing world is always situational, is always complicated, but we also have to acknowledge that, you know, white settler colonial imaginaries are often very blind to entangled ways of, of relating to place that aren't about a, a pristine nature. You know, many of these biocultural worlds that are flourishing in the shadows of white settler colonialism are all about intimacies and, and uses of, of forested ecosystems and, and rivers. So, so thinking about ways of relating to place that aren't just about coming up with these picturesque backdrops, but for thinking about places where people and plants and animals might flourish together, like that's, that's what a lot of my work has, has tried to explore. And as a closing, you ask, what sorts of novel ecological assemblages might we build together? Can we construct new ecosystems while embracing social justice concerns, grappling with the subjective experiences of other organisms and upholding conservation values all at the same time? Can we craft tactful proposals to those whom we love, offering links to our social worlds and industrial supply chains while keeping windows open? 
that give them opportunities to escape, end quote. Given a lot of what may seem like contradictions, which maybe are just more complexities calling on us to think in a all-of-the-above sort of way, I would love to hear how you've thought through this question, which I think you started touching on earlier, but this question raised by Matthew Krulu, which is, how do we love in a time of extinction? So I really love Crenshaw's ideas about intersectionality in human worlds, as, as well as Stuart Hall's articulation theory, his, his ideas about these non-essential links that we can establish between political f- projects or ideologies. And in approaching these multi-species worlds and thinking about flourishing and justice for whom, I, I really think in part it's an aesthetic project. You know, how, how can we reconfigure ideas of, of beauty to be more encompassing, to, to think about the forms of life that have been either actively vilified and targeted for destruction or the ones that just simply aren't noticed and elevate them to not necessarily in a rights idiom as having the same kind of rights as people. You know, we've, we've seen how human rights discourse fails in the realms of people. I um, spent my first book working with indigenous people from West Papua who basically aren't deemed fully human before the law. You you kill people in West Papua if you're a, a, an Indonesian soldier, you do it with utter, utter impunity. So rather than trying to mobilize these rights frameworks, like how, how do we think about making these tactful proposals, whether it's in a material way, like creating a zone or a space for flourishing, whether it's in a backyard, a public park, whether it's part of a sanctioned conservation initiative or what um, the artist Deanna Pendel calls these these fugitive projects. How, how, how might we find fugitive justice for creatures and peoples who are on the run, who aren't part of kind of the dominant logics of, of state protection and care? So, so I guess, um, yeah, in, in thinking about these future-oriented flourishings, it's about being inclusive and, and celebrating both the possibilities of, of small justice for the ones that we love. You know, it's, it's, it's really an arbitrary and high stakes decision. You know, who am I going to love? Who am I going to care for in this world? And, you know, often often that question, the answer that, that you, you derive for that question has high stakes for, you know, how you're going to behave towards, towards others in the world. So, you know, some are um, going to be protected. And, and how do we do these counter-hegemonic justice projects that are inclusive, that are intersectional, that are articulating diverse communities of people and other creatures together? In, in the here, in the now, while also holding on to dreams about possible tomorrows that, that are, are going to radically reconfigure the structures of power. That's, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm hoping for and, and trying to illustrate with, with some of this theoretical work. What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? 
So I've, I've just uh, picked up a, an older book by Robin Wall Kimmerer called Gathering Moss. And um, this this came to me um, through the artist Jackie Bruckner, who, who worked with Moss in, in her studio in uh, Manhattan. And I, I just love the way that Kimmerer shows us how Moss can be used to care for these places that have been utterly devastated. Um, she focuses in on one in particular, Brian Argentinium, that's found on roof tiles in Quito, Ecuador, and also on the asphalt tarmac of John F. Kennedy Airport. And, and she shows how um, Moss can not only find a foothold in, in some of these spaces that have been utterly devastated by, by mining, but also increase the survivorship and germination rate of, of trees. So moss becomes kind of a companion in, in this rewilding or re-worlding re, re of uh, landscapes that have been utterly devastated by extractive industries. Mm. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice that you engage with to stay grounded? I'm uh, learning how to garden now. So I've, I've inherited a garden that was created by someone else. And I, I think the garden is, is kind of a metaphor for, you know, these practices of, of embodied care and, and love. You know, this is my capacity to care, you know, in, in this here and now, this particular semi-urban landscape. Like there's there's a particular thisness of the garden. The garden has a, a multitude of plants, but also frogs and, and birds so that daily practice of interacting and caring for others in the real world gives me a chance to reflect and, and think about broader possibilities for the world. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? I would uh, talk back about that artist, Jackie Bruckner. So Jackie Bruckner, I, I was with her the day that she got the phone call telling her that she had lung cancer. And this is someone who's who's been doing really interesting art practices. In addition to working with Moss, um, one of my favorite projects that she did was went to the American South um, with people, um, African-American communities where people had been uh, picking cotton. And she took the soil that they had been working in, many of them barefoot and just simply modeled their feet and did this very humble gestural project, um, trying to get us to think about where our clothes come from and all the, the social relations, the histories of slavery, the, the histories of dispossession that kind of underpin modern life. So to think about the debts that we owe each other um, in, in human worlds, but also in these multi-species worlds, I, I really think that, that Jackie Bruckner had a lot of things figured out. And, and I'm also really inspired by her final artwork after she passed away. Um, she was buried in, in a fungal shroud in, in a basically a, a hole in upstate New York that her friends dug in the earth. And it, it was a gesture that was kind of at the edges of the law, but showing us how in dying we might give a gift uh, to future life. Well, Green Dreamer, this concludes our conversation today, but we will have more references mentioned in this conversation linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. And Eben, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Super fascinating and thought-provoking conversation. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to re-listening to this after this discussion here. But for now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I'd say go out there, you know, make some loving gestures to those in the world that, that you can perceive immediately around you, but, but also do that speculative work to think beyond your immediate scope of influence and imagine the, the possible coalitions and 
and kind of the collective energy that it might take to transform the world as it is to a, a future that we might collectively desire. This episode was made possible through the direct support of our listeners like you. To receive my personal reflections on these conversations, get access to our bonus live podcasts and gatherings, and support our show to continue, join us on Patreon today at greendreamer.com support. As a small independent show, we also greatly appreciate your five-star reviews and whenever you get the chance to share your favorite episodes. Our song featured today is Lose My Mind by Ruby My Dear. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. And I'm your host, Kamea Jane. Thanks for tuning in and I'll catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>